Okay, so this is Kim Nicolaitis back with Advent Christian Voices here on the 21st of May, uh, broadcasting at least at this time. And good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you may be in the world, um, from Waikiki here in Honolulu. In case you're wondering, we're a ways north of the uh, eruptions and they haven't really affected us in this part of the island. Well, for those of you who have been um, listening, I'm very grateful and certainly thankful for any comments or suggestions you may send in. We're going to take a break today from uh, our regular um, look at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to uh, take a look at the Gospel of Matthew. Actually, we're just just for this week, and then we'll be back again next week. But we're going to be looking at... um, what I call the great omission, the great omission in Matthew 28, um, 18 through 20. I'm not trying to be facetious in saying that. Everybody calls this the great commission. But um, hopefully you'll understand when I get into this what it is I mean by that. <clears throat> okay. Well, it's been said that the best way to establish one's priorities in life is First, to distinguish between what's important and that which is urgent, and then assign a level of importance or a level of urgency to each uh, priority. That which is both at the same time the most urgent and the most important, obviously, should take the highest possible uh, priority. However, generally, we deem that which we deem to be the most urgent and the most important are not mutually coexistent and frequently mutually exclusive. Hence, whatever is urgent generally takes precedence, and we get so easily distracted what is really should be our highest priority. Today, I want to look at a passage in which it may be truly said to possess both the greatest level of importance for our lives, as well as the highest level of urgency, if understood correctly, and therefore should be without peer of the absolutely highest priority for us as believers. One of the most preeminent doctrines in the Bible is the notion that we are accountable. We're accountable to God. and We've been created in his image, and one day we'll all have to give an account, uh, as Jesus said, for every idle word that we ever uttered. And that's kind of scary, I think. However, there's something that I find much more scary than that, personally, believe it or not. What really scares me when I read through the pages of the Bible is not the things that I may ever have done or said, for which I one day will have to give an account, but that bothers me uh, the most. Although I will be the first to admit that uh, some of those things I'm certainly not very proud of, to put it mildly. However, what really scares me is the things for which I will have to give an account for that which I have failed to have done, which I know I should have done in light of what God commands us all to do. In other words, the things that I may have omitted doing. And I had the chance. I believe that this passage before us today, in a nutshell, sums up everything that God ever expects of us to do. While the passage I'm looking at, and I'm going to read it in a minute, in our lifetimes here on planet Earth, in this age, you know, if we could just do nothing more than obey what Jesus commands here, each and every one of us to do what it says here in this passage, then we could we would be in a very, very good position come day, the day that we uh, stand before the auditor, you might say, 
we would be able to say essentially with Jesus, what he said to our father, you know, when he prayed that prayer in John 17, uh, verse four, I think what he was doing there was, he was actually modeling for us what he hoped we would aspire to. And what he said there, when he gave that high priestly prayer on the night that he was betrayed, he simply said, Father, I have glorified you here on earth, and I have finished the work you gave me to do. So what did Jesus mean by that? Well, you know, I think what he's talking about, his active obedience. When he died on the cross, which was later, which theologians refer to that as his passive obedience, in a sense. But in terms of his active obedience, really, I think that is a model for us. Obviously, we're not sent to be in atonement so that we have to die on a cross. But in terms of our active obedience, Jesus was saying that he had completed everything that the Father had sent him to do. And I think in that sense, he's a model for us. And we need to, uh, or at least uh, I would certainly expect that we would aspire someday to be able to say that same thing get up in the morning. That should be a motivation for us to be able to say at the end of the day, Father, you know, I finished the work you gave me to do. So if that's something you'd like to be able to say, I would expect that you would want to know how you can do that and what it is that God expects from us. If we could only do just this, what this passage says, by the way, then that would truly be our great commission and not rather become for us on that faithful day what perhaps should more correctly be termed as our great omission, which unfortunately I fear will be the case for far too many professed believers than you or I may think. So let's take a closer look at it for the all too bright brief time we have here together. Starting at verse 18, and I'm just going to read from the ESV. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And that concludes the word of God for today, and not only from this passage, but from the entire gospel, actually. So I only want to look at a couple, or maybe three elements, and I'd call them the confidence that we have in making disciples, the competence that we have in making disciples, and finally, the cause for which we will be making disciples. Maybe I should clarify that, but uh, let's look at the confidence, verses 18 and 19 and 20. <clears throat> the implications of Jesus' statement here in verse 18, that all authority in heaven and earth that belong to him, as staggering a claim as that may seem to be, nonetheless has always been a great source of inspiration and encouragement for the church throughout the ages, because it really means that all that we face in life will be in compliance with his loving guidance and oversight for us, there's nothing in all of creation, as Paul so eloquently describes in Romans 8, that can separate us from the love of Christ, whether heights or depths or trouble or persecution, famine, hardship, nakedness, danger, the sword, no matter where we go, no matter who or what we face, no matter what we may be up against, as great as the odds may ever appear to be by ruminating, uh, human reckoning, I should say, or our own. It's impossible for us to actually fail in the mission which Christ has entrusted to us as long as we continue to trust and obey him. And he has indeed given us a great commission, uh, a great task to do in this era as we wait his glorious return. 
far greater, in fact, than we may expect were we to acknowledge the extent of spiritual existence that exists in the world to the gospel. But nonetheless, despite all that, we can be absolutely certain that we will succeed in that mission when we are doing it according to God's will. Because there's absolutely no power on earth or in heaven that can stand against us or against God. And this passage, more than any other, I believe, in the Bible tells us precisely how we can do it. The psalmist writes that the one enthroned in heaven laughs at the pitifully futile efforts of man's ragings against him. I may paraphrase it, and he rebukes them as with a whiff of his nostrils, terrifying them in his wrath as he declares that his anointed king has been instated, installed, you might say, inducted, established, fixed already on his holy hill of Zion. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. That excludes none. There's no authority anywhere, whether in this universe or the next, that does not submit to his absolutely sovereign will. And we are blessed to be his representatives here. And this is why Jesus said, blessed are those who are broken or poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. They will inherit the universe. They will judge the angels. You know, to be broken or poor in spirit simply means that you've come to the point in your life where you are no longer going to resist, but are now finally willing to submit to the will of the Lord. And that is the first and foremost requirement of anyone who follows or believes in Christ. They must submit fully to his authority. They must submit to their wills, to his lordship, because he already has all authority in heaven and earth, and any attempt to resist him is an exercise in utter futility. Ultimately, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God, the Father in heaven. Just as Jesus declared to Paul on the road to Damascus, it's useless to kick against the goats. Why do that? You know what the goats were. They were the cattle prods with the sharp pointed ends that were used to keep the cattle moving on their way. The cows quickly learned that kicking against the goats was not a good idea. It doesn't make any sense. Those who, of us who believe in Jesus recognize that there is a power that upholds all things and by which all things cohere. And by that power alone, they are held together. If that power were to ever cease to exist or working, then everything as we know it would cease to exist. But those of us who believe in Christ have learned that the source of all this power is, in fact, Jesus himself. We live and move and have our beings in him. Every other authority has, that has ever existed comes from and came through and is to him. That's why Paul writes that we are submit to the authorities that be, because ultimately we know that they exist. All authorities that do exist do so to serve God. They've been established by him for his purposes, and they are hence under Christ's ultimate dominion, despite whatever outward appearances may temporarily be the case. But it's the church that is God's primary vehicle of authority to carry out his ultimate and perfect eternal will for his creation in bringing in the kingdom of God. In this commission of Christ, we can know that God has vested all of that authority now in his church. He's delegated it. The very same authority which was in his Christ is here in this passage delegated to his church as they obediently go forth for the express purpose of making disciples. And I'm going to elaborate on that, what I mean by making disciples. That's actually the only imperative in this whole passage. The other verbs, actually, the other words that are translated as verbs in English in the text are really just participles. That's verbal nouns. So if it says, for instance, go in English, what Jesus really said was 
as you are going or while you are going or the one who is going. In other words, wherever you are, no matter what else you may be doing or wherever you may be, your main requirement, your main imperative is to be in the process of making disciples. That's really the only imperative you have. So if you want to know God's will for your life, this is it. You need to be making disciples no matter who you are once you become a mature believer. And if you're not doing that, you're either being disobedient or just haven't arrived at the point where you understand the responsibilities of a mature believer in Christ. But that should be your goal so that you may be able to, you may be equipped and prepared so that you may be able to make disciples. What this means in verse 18 is that there is nothing that can stop the church in the fulfillment of this mission. Certainly nothing in the world, nothing in heaven, for this is God's declared will, both in its scope and magnitude, and there's absolutely no conceivable force that may prevail against it, and there are no limitations in scope or breadth or magnitude in the field to which the church has been called to convert and disciple. All creation must bow before him, and we, as his ambassadors, are to bring this message to them to all of his creation. This is our confidence, and this confidence can never be shaken. I mean, God will shake the heavens and the earth, so only those things which cannot uh, be shaken will remain. This is why we have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul declares, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. There's no one outside of its purview. There's no one who doesn't stand in absolute need of its mercy and grace, young or old, rich or poor, great or small, white or black, Anything in between, man or woman, child, adult, teenager, we all stand essentially as beggars at the foot of the cross. There's no room for boasting by anyone. There's always room for one more to come as long as it's still day. And so the message continues to ring out with great urgency for the night will soon be upon us. And then it will be too late for those who tarry. So don't tarry either in your decision to follow Christ or in your decision to obey him in this command because they're actually inseparable. We all stand at the precipice, you might say, of eternity, whether Christ comes to take us in the very next moment or we ultimately eventually go to him. Point of verse 18 is that all authority resides in Christ and now in his church in this world as it obeys this commission to make disciples. There's no limit to its scope. Or magnitude. Point number two, I want to talk about the confidence we need to make disciples in verse 19. Here we ask, what does it mean to be making disciples and how can I and why must I be obedient to this imperative? The answer to the question can be found primarily in, in verses 19 and 20. We first we need to know that this verse applies to us. Obviously, you could not have been speaking just to the apostles alone here because they are no longer with us and this command extends to the end of the age. But beyond that, it's also clear from what's implied in the expression teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Because included in all that Jesus commanded his apostles is most certainly this very commandment, that is, to make disciples. That qualifies this disciples, this uh, commandment rather. In other words, when you make disciples, you're going to teach them to make disciples. Ultimately, that's the goal. Uh, until then, you're not done. 
disciple making can be broken down into two. Let me just say this. Disciple making can be broken down into two areas. One is called evangelism. That's when you're making disciples of the world who don't believe in Jesus. You're bringing them to the point of believing. And the other is in the church, disciple making. You're making disciples of those in the church when they are still uh, yet arrived at the point of being able to obey this commandment, that is to make disciples. The goal, ultimately, is to graduate. That's how Jesus defines the limits of being a disciple. Baptism, you become a disciple. Make disciples, I mean, teach all that I've commanded, teach to make disciples. Once you do that, once you reproduce yourself, then you graduate to the point that you uh, expect. If you don't get to that point, you never really graduate out of the school of discipleship. That doesn't mean you're not, you don't continue to be a disciple because you always want to improve upon your ability to make disciples. So the whole object of this commandment is not only to reproduce themselves in making new disciples, but it is to produce disciples who are themselves going to be making new disciples who will, like themselves, have this ultimate objective in following this commandment in the making of new disciples themselves and on and on and on until Christ returns. So they couldn't be doing that unless, of course, uh, they expected it, this commandment to continue to be the imperative for the church. The process of proliferation, the principle of multiplication, is most ingeniously implicit in this command. That is to say, it's impossible to obey this command without including in it among those things that are to be taught the disciples they are making. So Jesus said that his father is glorified to the extent that we bear fruit, fruit that will last. Fruit that will last can be nothing less than disciples who are themselves already, or at least becoming disciple makers. Fruit of an apple tree is not an apple, it's actually another apple tree. So let us ask ourselves, ourselves the question, what would happen if the church actually took seriously the need to obey this command completely in making disciples? who themselves are capable and motivated to make disciples after their own likeness and hence initiating this principle of multiplication. By the way, it's impossible to be a true believer in Christ without also being a disciple. The first thing a believer does is get baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So anyone who has not been baptized should be a disciple. You can't distinguish between a believer and a disciple. I cannot say that enough times because if you think that's possible, just become a believer without going through the process of discipleship, then you're wrong. If you want to be saved, you need to be a disciple. And that means it should be your ultimate goal in life to produce disciples. And that's not something just reserved for those called the ministry of the gospel. If you're a Christian, you are called to the ministry of the gospel, actually. You are called to serve. You are Those of us in the so-called ministry of the church are only there for the primary purpose of equipping others for the mystery ministry. Everybody is ministers, and you, everybody needs to be about the business of ministering. Uh, making disciples is not a ministry of the church. It is the ministry of the church. So unless you're willing to do the ministry yourselves, then 
you know, your pastor is going to be forced to do it. And if your pastor is forced to do it, then he'll never have the time or energy he needs to, which is his job of shepherding the flock, which is to equip you to become disciple makers. If he or someone else doesn't equip you, then you'll never grow up to be a disciple of Christ or a disciple maker or a mature believer, you might say. Your ultimate objective in life as a child of God in this world is not just to make disciples, actually, it's to go out there and make disciples. So when you stand before Christ on Judgment Day, that will be ultimately the the only real thing that will determine the outcome. I know Matthew 25 talks about uh, because you did this and did that and did this and so forth. All of those things that Jesus mentions there are methods of doing what? Of making disciples. So you have to know how to do it, of course. How effective, however, you were in this process of making disciples. In other words, you can simply ask the question, how about the disciples you produced? Are they producing? Did they bear fruit that will last? And of course, God knows all the circumstances that surrounded your contribution to the disciple-making process. So you'll not be able to say, for instance, hey, that's not fair, God. What about the thief on the cross? Because if you say that, all God has to do is say, you know, he did everything that he could. He may not have been effective in making many disciples when he was living, but in his death, he recognized Jesus as Lord and the justice of his own sentence. And that testimony he bore on the cross may not seem like much, but no one who's truly read the gospel since then could not be, have been, have not been duly impressed. Consequently, hundreds of thousands of millions of believers have had their faith strengthened through that testimony. So he's probably made more disciples in his death than any 10 Christians you know will ever make them in their entire lives. In fact, he was so effective in his testimony that he was the only one recorded in history we know of who will actually make it one day into heaven without getting baptized. So if you haven't been baptized, you can, I can assure you it's still possible to get into heaven but only if you'd be willing to take the only other biblical option available, and that is crucifixion, if you prefer. And that's your choice, of course. However, I'd strongly urge you to get baptized otherwise before the day is out. <laughs> the point is, where is your heart? Only God knows if it's truly focused on giving him glory and obeying him. And if you really want to be obedient, you are still alive and well. Well, you need just to focus on obeying this Simple commandment, it makes it simple. And putting all the resources at your command towards the achievement of this endeavor or preparing yourself and others to obey it. Everything you ever do, if you really want to be pleasing to God, will ultimately actually depend upon that. So let's consider the principle of multiplication inherently implied in this commandment. If I were to ask you the question, which would you prefer? Five billion, five million dollars. You know, free of charge. You, know, you just take the five million and, and you go scot free. Or I'll just give you one penny, one penny. But this penny has a special property. You'll only have that property for one hour. And that is that every two minutes, this penny will have the capability of making a disciple of itself. Of course, that capability uh, vanishes for completely after an hour. Well, what I'm trying to say is if you had a disciple-making penny, that penny would have essentially the ability to reproduce itself 30 times during that time. However, if you chose the penny 
even though you'd have to carry around a lot of change, you would have made within one hour, you would have made an additional $400,000. You would have made $5,400,000 if you just had a disciple making penny for an hour. And this is the principle behind making disciples. And this is why I say uh, it's the great omission. The great omission is to be making disciple makers. Yeah, making disciples is one thing, but making disciple makers, that's a little bit beyond that. That's what Jesus is really saying here. And that's what qualifies his commandment to make disciples. Is you make disciples who are capable of reproducing themselves if you want to make fruit that will last. If the church had done that, if the first 11 disciples had done that, they understood that. I'm not saying they didn't, but if they had actually done that, and let's say it took them two years. Jesus took three and a half years to, to make disciples of, you know, a dozen or so. Just If it was just a dozen people, we could assume that if one were to invest himself in one person, just one person, he would be able to accomplish what Jesus did for 12 people. For one person, you should be able to do it in two years. So if we took that, those 11 disciples, assume that they went out to produce, reproducing disciples, and they invested themselves, just one person for two years to be able to accomplish that, you know how many disciples they would have produced in one generation or 40 years? Well, they would have produced 3.8 times 10 to the 21st power of disciples. Know how many of that is? Let's put it in perspective. That would be over 100 billion times the number of people who will ever have inhabited this planet, assuming Christ doesn't return for another 300 years. So it's obviously not possible to follow these instructions perfectly according to the letter, since his disciples, I guess, failed to do that. They may have failed that, but they have one excuse at least. You know, that's because they all died trying every single one of them because of their witness to Christ except John, who they tried to kill but were unable to because God protected him. And since they couldn't kill him, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, where he gave uh, them, gave us the book of Revelation, which teaches us to persevere in the face of persecution. But I'm sure there weren't too many occupants of the island of Patmos, at least, uh, who had not heard the gospel. The point is that, but if we were just to follow this principle according to the spirit of the law to the best of our ability, then it seems to me that there's no reason to think the Lord, return of the Lord could not come in our lifetimes because the population of this world is only seven or eight billion. And if you say, you know, 30 people hear this message, even just if 30 people apply this to their lives, that would mean in a dozen years, a little over a dozen years, there wouldn't be anyone left who had not already become a disciple. Now we know that everyone's not going to respond in the manner that we may hope. Hence, we cannot expect that the whole world is going to turn to Christ. But the point is that when Jesus says he wants you to produce fruit and fruit that will last, he's not just talking about one or two people. He wants you to go out and Produce as many disciples as is conceivably possible. And he's given you the means by which you can 
do this. He wants you to do it through this principle of multiplication, teaching them to obey all, teaching them to make disciples. And that means you invest yourselves in the lives of those who will listen to you until they reach a stage of maturity that they're able to go out on their own. Okay, finally, I want to uh, mention one other point that this passage illuminates us on, and that is the cause for which we will be making disciples. In verse 20, Jesus gives us a promise here that he will be with us, which is the same thing as saying that God will be with us as we obey this commandment. And by the way, when he says, I will be with you, the word he uses for you is the plural. In Greek, they distinguish between singular and plural. And that merely uh, validates the point is he's going to be with us as we are doing this because we can't do this by ourselves. Even if it's just one disciple we're making, there's going to be two of us there. That means Jesus will be with us. So, why is this important? Well, I think the best way to illustrate this is in the life of Joseph found in the Old Testament in Genesis 36 through 42. I'm not going to take the time to read that entire passage. And I would encourage you to read it if you haven't read it. I presume most of you have a familiarity with it. But let me just tell you about it briefly. The major theme of this account was the fact that God was with Joseph, despite all the mistreatment he received at the hands of people. You remember when he was very young, he was sold into captivity. He was sold as a slave by his brothers who didn't like him or jealous of him. He was forsaken, in a sense, by his father for all appearances. Uh, Actually, his father thought he had been killed, so his father didn't go around searching for him. But he was later falsely accused by his master's mistress. So that he finally ended up in prison for something he hadn't done. He stayed there for several years. And there, he was also forgotten and left to rot by those he tried to help it would almost be impossible to try to conceive of a life that had more misfortune, more betrayal, or more reasons for resentment than that of Joseph. The only thing that he had going for him was the fact that the Bible says that God was with him, God to whom he'd been introduced by his father Jacob when he was just a child. But that apparently was all that was needed, really, to succeed and to see the fulfillment of all his childhood dreams no matter how difficult you may otherwise have, you would think would be necessary to accomplish those things. The same actually was the case with Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, and all of those who accomplished great things for God down through the ages. As Paul declares to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is with us and God is for us, then we can be truly free to dream great things attempt great things for God, things we were made for, things that are in our DNA. So let me just close with an illustration I heard from a fellow who actually planted a, a what became a megachurch, but he then left it because he felt as such it wasn't being particularly obedient to this particular commandment, the Great Commission. 
And he likened the condition of those who attended that megachurch to characters in this animated movie entitled Madagascar, Escape to the Jungle. There was this zebra who was had been born in this um, zoo in New York City, and he was celebrating his 10th birthday, and he went around. He had some friends there, a lion, a giraffe, and a hippopotamus. But he couldn't, you know, he, he, there was some gnawing um, void in his life as he, you know, reflected upon all of the benefits of growing up in New York City and living in this um, posh uh, zoo where all his needs were met. You know, he enjoyed the free food, all the attention, the care, the free medical insurance and security and all of that. Just that there was something missing in his life. He couldn't put a finger on it. And he felt there was he was made for something more than just spending his life lying around in a zoo all day long. So the story goes, he, convic- he convinced his fellow inmates that they needed to join him on this little attempt to escape. As it happened, they managed to do that and found their way onto a ship and later onto the island of Madagascar, which had a large population of jungle inhabitants. So when they arrived there, they were introduced to a whole new set of challenges from all of those animals which had been living in the wild all their lives. Once they began to experience living in the wild and enjoying the freedom to go wherever, do whatever they wanted to do, the lion actually found he had this great urge to eat these zebra, among other things. But they began to discover all kinds of things they never would have imagined to be true about themselves. Well, that's the thing about being a disciple. As long as you remain in the discipleship mode, you never take the step of graduating to to the moving into the disciple-making mode. You, in essence, just remain, in a sense, as if you're in a zoo. You never really discover the capacity for which God created you. Sure, you may enjoy uh, a certain degree of security, but you miss out on so much more that God has for you. You were meant to be a disciple maker. That's in your DNA, whether you know it or not. And that should be your goal, and you should settle for nothing less. Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father, we confess that we have allowed ourselves to be distracted from what is truly important and truly urgent in your eyes, especially in view of the impending, indeed, imminent return of your Son, our Lord. Help us to trust you more fully, to dare to believe and obey that you have created us fully obey this great commission to make disciples. Let it never be said to be in our own lives, particularly the great omission. It's not something reserved just for the professional clergy, as we may have thought before. Forgive us, O Lord, in your grace and mercy, and empower us to glorify you by becoming, truly becoming productive and bearing fruit that will last as we focus ourselves to the task you have given us to make disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again for listening. This is Kim Nicolaitis uh, signing off from Advent Christian Voices here in Hawaii.